0: Chapter 51 The Scattering Winds Al-Dhariyat In the name of God, the Most Compassionate, the Most Merciful The central theme of this chapter is the Day of Resurrection. It explains how people will see the results of their deeds, whether good or bad, on the Day of Judgment and how they will reap there what they have sown here. In pursuit of this goal, this chapter opens with a series of oaths that invokes the mechanism by which rain is made to fall upon earth and represents a sort of symbolism for deeds and their consequences in the natural order. By those winds that scatter, the riyat, far and wide. The riyat refers to the winds that blow across the oceans, scattering the molecules of moisture and water vapour that they carry into the air. This term is mainly used for storms and winds that carry dust particles high into the air. However, given the context of the following verses, the reference here clearly has to do with moisture and precipitation. The rain that falls throughout the year is caused by the warm winds from equatorial regions that blow across the ocean's surface. This causes water to evaporate and diffuse into the air, rise upward and be carried at high speed by the wind for several thousand kilometres, in order to bring sustenance to various lands by dispersing millions of tons of water, rain, throughout the land. This oath has three results, each one of which is introduced by the following verses. And those that carry a heavy burden of the rain. This verse refers to forces of nature that carry a heavy load. As these particles of water vapor condense into rain clouds and are borne aloft by the winds, they represent an extremely heavy load. And those that glide with ease upon the sea. This verse calls attention to the apparent ease with which the wind moves these loads across earth without the need for any motor, fuel or electricity And this is why we always compare things to the wind and air when we want to say how light they are. Even though they are nothing more than air currents, these winds carry millions of tons of water, the mass of all the river's water, over the land, and those who distribute rain by God's command. Here, refers to those forces that distribute things by God's command. In this case, a cosmic instruction to distribute sustenance to all people and beings according to the dictates of the divine will. Although these four verses represent four separate oaths, in reality, they are all sworn by the same phenomenon. For the latter three verses merely expound different aspects of the same thing. When God wills to demonstrate the greatness and importance of a created phenomenon, he swears an oath by it. We should not lose sight of these oaths' ultimate purpose, to call attention to the point that God is making in the next verse. Surely, what you are promised is true. In other words, God's promise that the resurrection will happen is absolute and contains not even the slightest hint of falsehood. What does this fact have to do with these oaths? The recompense, day of judgment, is sure to happen. The recompense, Namely, the natural result of a person's deeds will certainly be forthcoming on the day which people receive their just deserts for whatever they have done. Therefore, given the process of creating and distributing trillions of invisible water molecules worldwide, these molecules will either become a source of life and blessings for all living creatures, or violent storms and floods that ruin the land. The Day of Judgment is no different, for each atom of a person's deeds will be collected and brought forth. The countless actions that we have performed during our lives will, just like the countless tiny water molecules comprising a cloud, cluster together and one day return to us, whether in the form of life and blessings, or of ruin and devastation. When God swears oaths by these visible phenomena and declares that the promised resurrection is real and truthful, this implies that the best way we can understand the latter's nature and mechanism is by studying the workings of the natural order that surrounds us. All of the processes to which these oaths call attention to are designed to bring water to the land and keep it alive. This is the recompense of nature. In the same way the ultimate recompense of our actions will one day return to us. By the heaven, as samaa with its pathways. This oath invokes the heavens those symbols of stability and beauty. Arabic lexicons say that its pathways refers to things that have been tightly bound together and are well made. For example, a decorative belt is both an item of clothing that can be tightly bound and a type of ornament that beautifies a person's appearance. In other Quranic chapters, Earth's atmosphere is given two functions – to beautify, as well as to protect the planet and its inhabitants. Not only does the atmosphere contain essential elements for life, but it also traps the sun's heat, blocks out harmful ultraviolet radiation, and shields our planet against harmful meteors. Therefore, Its pathways refers to the atmosphere's beauty and stability, as well as to its role of protecting our planet's surface. As-sama, which is in the definite form, refers to the seven distinct levels of our planet's atmosphere, each of which performs a specific function, from the nearest, the troposphere, to the furthest, the magnetosphere a magnetic field that shields Earth from cosmic rays and other harmful particles. Surely, you are of various opinions, meaning that human beings, just like the atmosphere, are not uniform and undifferentiated. Each person is different, with his or her own voice and views. Those who turn away from it, are truly deluded. You turn away from the facts that the resurrection is fast approaching and that you will have to face the consequences of your deeds. You dispute and deny these facts, acting as though they will never happen. Instead of reflecting on your future in eternity, you cling to this world with all of your might. What sort of person holds such a mistaken notion of the hereafter? Perish the Conjecturers A conjecturer is someone who speaks on the basis of supposition, who gives opinions without any knowledge, who relies on no rational or transmitted evidence or principles. In short, they just say whatever they feel like saying. Their denial of these higher realities cuts them off from God's mercy and casts them outside the divine order of creation. Those who do not care about the truth and speak on the basis of their own conjectures without evidence have gone and are leading others away from the truth. But they also have other qualities as is made clear below. Those steeped in ignorance and heedlessness. Here, God is saying that such people are drowned and lost because they are consumed by their base desires. It is one thing to make a mistake, but quite another thing entirely to have gone utterly astray. Those whose souls have been suffocated by materialism have lost all traces of spirituality, and thus no longer believe in higher principles or transcendent moral values. They are also heedless, meaning carefree and treating all things lightly, no matter how important they might actually be. They hastily bow and prostrate for a few minutes in their prayers, mindlessly repeating some phrases without paying any attention to their meaning. These people are also in a state of ignorance because they attach no importance to belief in God, the hereafter, their religion, or their faith. They ask mockingly, when is this judgment day coming? Instead of impudently asking when they will die, they should think about how they will use their remaining time to make up for their previous misdeeds. They do not realize that God has kept the time of the Resurrection a secret in order to test humanity. It will be the day when they will be tried and tested over the fire. After people extract gold and silver from the ground, they heat up these ores to remove their impurities and refine them into metal. Everyone will be tested so that their true nature and essence will be revealed. It is said to them, taste the punishment, this is what you wish to hasten. You were so eager to see it before you believed in it, so why are you averse to it now? The righteous will be in gardens with flowing springs. Gardens and springs are indefinite to indicate that their true nature is beyond human comprehension. We cannot fully grasp that which we have not seen or experienced directly. When speaking of things existing beyond our level of experience, it is only natural to employ figurative and metaphorical speech to make them somewhat comprehensible. Joyously receiving what their Lord gives them. Indeed, they were doers of good. And why are they enjoying this prosperity and happiness? Because they lived virtuous lives in this world and reflect their inner beauty and benefit others. The Quran describes these people as those who are kind to others, who give charity and who do good deeds to benefit others instead of themselves. People must acquire three qualities to be complete. Faith, defined as their relationship with God. Virtue, as in treating God's creatures properly. And piety, meaning that they respect the rights of others, limits laid down by God and the obligation to be obedient and moral. Sleeping only a little at night They spent part of the night awake, which is also a habit of the faithful. We are told that the Prophet spent two-thirds of the night in worship. Many other believers have also spent many hours during the night praying, supplicating, and reciting the Quran. This is what the first Muslims were like. When we pray during the daytime, our mind is sometimes so busy that we can barely focus. But during the night, our minds are relatively relaxed and free from distracting thoughts, which enable us to approach God with our fullest attention. Praying at dawn for God's forgiveness This is when the pious ask God to cleanse them of impurity, try to draw closer to Him, reflect upon their past, and think about their future, knowing that sooner or later they will die and enter a different realm. These verses call such things to mind. Are these things that scatter, yet? Their exceedingly small daily deeds that emanate from their being and gradually accumulate into something larger going to become the rains of God's mercy or the storms of tribulation and ruin. And in their wealth, the beggar and the needy have a due share. Those who possess taqwa do not see their wealth as belonging only to them and thus consciously set aside a certain percentage of it for the less fortunate remember when these verses were revealed giving zakat alms giving was still voluntary therefore this verse can only refer to that which people have freely chosen to donate however Muslims should not imagine that after paying zakat, they can spend the rest of their wealth any way they want and without regard for the needs and hardships of others. According to this verse, the poor and needy have a right to and a claim over the wealth of the affluent. Note that God describes this as a right as opposed to giving something to others in order to gain the upper hand over them later on. This verse identifies two kinds of people. The beggar, who asks for help, and the needy, who do not publicize their plight because they are ashamed to do so. An Islamic society, or each Muslim, is obliged to be aware of such people And take care of them. No matter how small or insignificant such acts might seem, they will eventually become the rain that sustains us in the next world by reviving the dead land of our hearts. On earth, there are signs for those with sure faith. And in yourselves, too. Do you not see? In other words, this world contains signs, such as the oceans and the infinite life forms dwelling therein, some of which are truly dazzling to behold, that, if pondered upon, might enable people to attain certainty of belief. This is true for the bird, insect, plant, and all other kingdoms of living creatures. In short, If you pay close attention, you will see God's signs all around you. In fact, all you really have to do is look at yourself, for you contain unbelievable wonders. For example, our body is composed of trillions of cells that are living and interacting together. Is not a person at fault and heedless if they are unaware of the amazing things taking place inside of their own bodies with all these academic articles, documentary films and other accessible sources of information that reveal wonders in human physiology. And in the heaven is your sustenance and all that you have been promised. This refers to the outpourings of mercy in the form of rain, as well as all of the processes and changes that make it possible. All of these spring forth from a world beyond this one. While heavens literally denotes the sky, in reality, this word also points to the cosmic order and systems governing this world. For example, life could not exist without rain and sunlight, which come from the heavens. By the Lord, Rub of the heavens and earth, all this is as real and true as your speaking. Rub means the one who directs, guides and arranges the world. So this verse invokes not only the greatness of the heavens and earth, but also the one who governs them. Some commentators have said that this verse means that this prediction, that the resurrection will occur, is as clear as the words you utter. Although people may not believe what they see with their own eyes or what they hear with their own ears, Such doubt is not possible when they are speaking. If we have the ability to verbalize and speak all of the sights, sounds and knowledge stored in our brain during our lifetime, surely the all-powerful can cause all that one of his servants has done to manifest themselves, for such things have been stored in an archive. That is infinitely greater than our brain. O Muhammad, have you heard the story of Abraham's honoured guests? This verse speaks about Prophet Abraham, whom the Quran holds up as an exemplar for all people to follow. His relationship to his people is like that of a refreshing rain to a dry and dead land. Realizing that the Quran is first and foremost a book of guidance that relates historical events to teach us a lesson, we must ask ourselves what message God is imparting to us by means of these verses. This is especially so considering the very specific details provided, which at first glance do not seem essential for us to know. They went in to see him and said, Peace. He answered, Peace, saying to himself, These people are strangers. What does this mean? Naturally, whenever two or more people encounter one another, they exchange greetings. But if we pay close attention to the Arabic words in this verse, we notice the Quran is hinting that whenever someone greets you, you should return it with an equivalent or better response. These people are strangers, contain several noteworthy points. For instance, Abraham had never met them and yet treated them in a very friendly and kind manner. If a family member visits you, it is only natural for you to greet him or her warmly. But if you see someone unfamiliar at the door, you will be more reserved, perhaps asking, Do you need something? You would not normally welcome such a person into your home with warmth and affection. But this is exactly what Abraham did, even though he might never see them again. Then he, Abraham, returned to his family and brought back a fat Roasted calf. But why does the Quran say he covertly returned to his family? He did so because he thought that if his guests knew his intention, they might insist that he not trouble himself and his family on their account. As for he brought back a fat roasted calf, what does this teach us? Abraham could have brought them simple food, however, he slaughtered a plump calf for them. In ancient times, cows were very valuable because people's lives depended upon them. So you can see the great respect and generosity that Abraham was showing to these complete strangers. He was doing this as a host and was expecting nothing. From them in return, and placed it near them, saying, Will you not please eat? Again, notice the subtle lessons here of how to treat guests. It does not say that Abraham placed it in front of them, but rather he brought it close to them. This simple action showed affection and consideration for them as well as his sincere hope that they would eat it. And yet, despite all this, Abraham's guests did not touch the food, not because they have rejected it, but because they are angels who have assumed the form of human beings. Among ancient peoples, it was customary for a guest to eat from the offered food in order not to insult or disrespect the host. In fact, ignoring this custom might suggest that the guest intends to somehow harm the host. Therefore, he becomes concerned when his guests do not reach for the food. He Abraham became afraid of them, but they said, do not be afraid, and gave him good news of a son who would be gifted with knowledge. Despite his apprehension, his face showed none of his concern. Throughout his life, Abraham had longed for a child, and now these angels had brought him the good news that his wife would bear a wise son. His wife, Sarah, then entered with a loud cry, struck her face, and said, A barren old woman? How shall I bear a child? The Torah says that Sarah was 90 at this time, and that Abraham himself was about 110 years old. And so it seems that she struck her face out of embarrassment as well as of joy and excitement. They replied, It will be so. This is what your Lord has said. He is the wise, the all-knowing. Given that God does everything on the basis of wisdom and knowledge, there is a reason behind whatever he wills. Abraham said, And afterwards, What is your errand, O messengers? Abraham was so humble, and pure-hearted that he could not believe that these angels had been sent only to bring him this bit of personal news. They must have been sent for an important duty or something momentous. They replied, We have been sent to a people lost in sin, Mujrim. Mujrim is someone who cuts him or her off from God. A similitude for this is a tree that grows well when it is connected to the sun and able to absorb air as well as minerals and water from the ground. Cutting it off from any one of these things, all of which are necessary for its life, is thus a jurm, a crime, and an act of cruelty, for doing so will cause the tree to begin to shrivel and eventually die, to bring down upon them baked clay. Similarly, cutting one's relations with God, people, history, time, or the afterlife can also be called a jurm. This is why these angels said that they have been sent to punish the mujrim, marked by your Lord for the transgressors. The Quran uses this word for someone whose behaviour has transgressed the bounds of human decency and reason. This could apply to just about any area of life, whether seeking power and authority over others, social status or wealth. The verse does not detail how these clay will rain down, but merely alludes to them. However we saw that Lut's people were destroyed by a volcanic eruption. This incredibly destructive event, which is usually accompanied by an earthquake, creates a wide radius of devastation. Vast quantities of molten lava and ash are thrown into the atmosphere and rain down on the surrounding area, burying everything beneath them. In any case, it appears that precisely such an event took place close to where Lut's people were living. Then we evacuated the believers from there. Other chapters indicate that this is Lut's household, all of whom were saved but his wife. However, this and other verses appear to suggest that as no one else from the city had responded to his preaching, Only his household and maybe a few followers were exempted from this divine punishment. But we found not within them other than a single household of Muslims. In this verse, the angels say they took out everyone who was a believer but found only one household of Muslims. This is a very significant point. For these Muslims were not the followers of Islam, as we know it did not exist at that time. However, when belief reaches its apex, it becomes Islam in the literal sense of the true submission to God. We all know that reciting, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his messenger. Is enough to enter Islam. However, people do not attain the highest level of faith and submission to God merely by uttering these words, but only become real Muslims when they submit their entire being to the truth. In fact, the Quran describes each of God's prophets as Muslim as well as Jesus' Apostles. Quranic term Islam refers to the act of submitting to God's commands. It was Abraham who blazed the path of submission and surrender to God and who was the founder of monotheism and left the town to be a sign for those who fear the painful punishment. This is an example for those who fear relapsing into sin and error, and know that every action produces its own consequences. There is also a sign for you in the story of Moses when we sent him to Pharaoh with clear proof. In Moses' case, this argument consisted of manifest proofs and clear miracles. Pharaoh turned away, relying upon his supporters saying, this is a sorcerer or a crazy man. Pharaoh's behavior indicates his lack of concern with what Moses had to say, as well as his decision to rely upon his army upon which his power and authority rested. Such a reaction is common among those who reject something with content. Pharaoh turned away from Moses and the clear logic he presented because he was secure in his belief that his military, political and economic might would protect him. During Moses' time, magicians were highly educated people who knew things like chemistry that others did not and thus could do things that seemed miraculous. This is why Pharaoh says that Moses is either a magician or a crazy man. So we seized him and his forces and threw them into the sea. He was to blame. Those who turn their back on the truth and are arrogant naturally deserve blame and reproach. And those who have no interest in changing their ways or improving themselves should be criticized. There is another sign in the odd, against whom we sent the life-destroying wind. The odd also denied God's messengers. Although winds usually play an important role in creating clouds and pollinating plants, there are also chaotic winds, known as barren winds that benefit no living thing. The Quran says that the odd were subjected to a barren, icy wind for seven nights and eight days until they had all perished. Whenever the natural order is unbalanced, we see more large-scale destruction and devastation. Such an intense hurricane befell the odd, that everything exposed to it became like a decayed bone. It spared nothing that it reached, but made it all as dust. After eight days, no trace of life remained, for even the plants and trees had been annihilated. And also to the Thamud, who were told, enjoy yourselves for a while. The story of Prophet Saleh's people, the Thamud, is referenced in greater detail in other chapters. Here, it is only alluded to in passing. Enjoy yourselves for a while. In other words, let yourselves be distracted by this worldly life's fleeting pleasures, steeped in sin and disobedience to God they hunted down and killed the camel that Saleh had told them to let roam freely and drink from where it desired. God sent this test to see whether they would respect the sanctity of just one thing. But they could not manage even this, and thus were utterly annihilated by the divine punishment, just like the odd. It seems to be human nature that making something forbidden only makes people more determined to do it. This is a test of one's willpower. Namely, can you restrain yourself from engaging in just one thing? After the Thamud killed the camel, Saleh gave them three days to repent and make amends to God. Their refusal to do so and subsequent mockery of him resulted in enjoy yourselves for a while. They rebelled against the command of your Lord so the thunderbolt seized them while they were looking on. They could not even remain standing, let alone defend themselves. As anyone who has taken a science class knows, Lightning occurs when the positive charge of storm clouds comes into contact with the Earth's negative charge, which causes several thousand volts of electricity to be discharged into the ground. This discharge is so powerful that any tree that it strikes will burst into flames. If it strikes a person, they will almost certainly die instantaneously. Before that, we destroyed the people of Noah. They were a wicked people. Wicked here means to violate the sanctity of something, or act in any way that goes beyond the bounds of human decency, or transgresses the limits of the law. Up to this point, the chapter has only briefly referred to past peoples, all of whom transgressed the bounds of human nature as laid down by God and suffered the consequences for doing so. If we pay close attention we can discern four types of punishment here, each of which corresponds to a fundamental element of nature, water, earth, fire and air. Pharaoh and his soldiers who depended on the Nile for their sustenance were drowned in water. Meanwhile, the Quran describes the odd as possessing great physical strength, and yet the violent wind that buffeted their city left them lying like the trunks of trees that had been torn out of the ground. The Thamud were destroyed by the shock of a thunderclap. And Lut's people, were buried under the torrent of volcanic earth, molten rock, and clouds of burning ash that rained down upon them. All of these people, who thought that they would enjoy a long life and imagined that no power could defeat them, were wiped off the face of the earth by natural calamities and disasters. The following verses now shift to a new topic the natural order, we built the heavens with our power and indeed extended them. Surely no one in pre-Islamic Arabia thought that this was the case, because this theory was only developed in the early 20th century through the pioneering work of scientists and astronomers. Modern scientists discovered that the universe has no fixed limits, and thus has been in a dynamic state of growth since it came into being since Big Bang approximately 13.7 billion years ago. Moreover, various parts of the universe are still expanding, moving further and further away from one another. It is truly amazing to consider the scale of the universe and the speed with which it expanded, moving at almost the speed of light. And Earth we spread out, and how well we smoothed it out. In the distant past, our planet's surface was a violent volcanic landscape. After being constantly struck by comets made of ice, its surface gradually cooled and was covered with water that spread out like a carpet in every direction. But even after this event, which took place millions of years ago, Earth's surface was still being rocked by earthquakes and volcanoes, and thus remained completely unsuitable for life. But as the planet's crust became less chaotic, and mountains helped stabilise it, the world became a suitable home for humanity, just like a cradle in which you place a baby to sleep. In reality, Earth is the cradle of humanity. And we created pairs of all things so that you, people, might take notes. Life on Earth did not originally exist in male-female pairs. This occurred after millions of years of evolution, when X and Y chromosomes appeared in the plant kingdom and enabled evolution to acquire a new way to exchange genetic material within a species. The system that governs the universe is truly marvelous to behold. Can one really believe that these binary pairs upon which the world depends simply came into existence due to blind chance or probability? Is there no plan behind this order? God urges those who are listening to wake up, behold the careful arrangement of the world that they inhabit, and know that it must have a creator and sustainer. So say to them, O prophet, therefore flee unto God. I am sent by him to give you clear warning. Interestingly, this verse tells people to flee from God and toward God, just as a child flees from its mother's anger toward her affection and care. Thus, God's primary goal is not to punish humanity just as no good teacher enters a classroom with the intention of punishing the students, and no school is created to give its pupils failing grades on their exams. Just as students must avoid whatever might hold them back, and hold fast to whatever might help them progress, human beings must flee from God's punishment and toward His forgiveness and mercy. Given that human beings naturally seek to avoid risk, God reminds them that the hereafter is no laughing matter. How can people remain indifferent when confronted by any threat of harm, let alone something that will determine their eternal destiny? But before they can flee from this supposed danger and seek refuge in God, they must understand exactly what it is. And do not set up any other God alongside him. I am sent by him to give you clear warning. Notice that the Quran says alongside God as opposed to instead of God. In other words, if you worship God, you must not worship a prophet or a saint. Your ego or some other kind of actual or abstract idol. Only after abandoning all such things will you be a true monotheist. Prophets and Imams exist only to show us how to worship God properly. He uses these exemplars of how to know God and the best examples to follow in worshipping Him to guide us toward the truth. The Quran tells us to flee from an evil outcome and seek God's protection. Do not associate anyone with God or make anything a partner to God, which is a kind of polytheism. Because you are placing your own desires next to God. True monotheists only see God, whereas polytheists see God themselves and others. This is what I am sent by him to give you clear warning means. Similarly, no messenger came to those before them, but they said of him in like manner, a sorcerer or a crazy man. Did they tell one another to do this? No, they are a people who exceed all bounds. As the disbelievers from earlier nations who treated God's prophets and messengers in this way were not contemporaries, they could not have conspired together or coordinated their efforts. So how can we explain the fact that they all behaved in the same way? Answer is that the result of rebelling against God is to deny the truth, exceed all bounds or rebellion, literally means to overstep the boundaries. The outcome is always the same, the rebels reject the truth and accuse God's chosen messenger of being a crazy man or a magician. So turn away from them, for you are not to blame. God tells the prophet to turn away and ignore them when they blame him, for his only duty was to deliver the message. When Jonah loses hope for his people and forsakes them, the Quran says, Then the fish swallowed him while he was blameworthy. Perhaps the prophet also worried that if he turned his back on his faithless people and left them that he would become worthy of God's blame. This is why God tells him, you are not to blame continue to remind them for reminding profits the believers of course this is true only when the audience is receptive to your message if they do not want to listen to you there is no use in admonishing them the prophets preaching and exhortations are only for those who are ready to hear the words of truth and pay attention to him. I created the jinn, and humans only that they may do ibadah of me. In this verse, God reveals the reason for humanity's creation. Someone might well ask why he created us in the first place. What is the purpose of our life, with all its ups and downs? Translations of the Quran usually render ibada and its cognates as worship and therefore the phrase to worship me. According to this adaptation, God created us only to worship him. Is our God the kind of Lord who needs servants and slaves to do his bidding? This is a perfect example of a translation that fails to convey the full depth of a text's meaning and actually obscures it. The figurative meaning of ibada in the Quran is to level one's own being in such a way that it is ready to carry the caravan of the one true object of worship, to open the door of the heart so that it is ready to receive the illuminating light of God's mercy we must be like sponges that absorb the water of God's qualities and bring them into our being. Although we can never know God's essence directly, the Quran describes His attributes in ways that we can understand. For example, God is all-knowing, which alludes to the relation of our knowledge to His knowledge. God is all-wise, which suggests that we can and must learn from the Divine Wisdom. This is true for all of the attributes and names given to God. Believers must manifest God's attributes of might and mercy by being confident and possessing self-esteem, while at the same time being kind and merciful to all creatures. This verse put jinn next to humans in God's creation. Jinn is an adjective and a noun of state rather than a particular kind of being. Just as beautiful is an adjective that refers to beautiful items, people, views, and works of art. Similarly, jinn refers to that which is hidden, unknown, and unfamiliar. Namely, something beyond the bounds of our knowledge. Therefore, jinn encompass many things which are unknown and unfamiliar to humans. God reminds us that he has made a compact with us that our being should only be filled with his qualities and attributes. God enjoins us to submit ourselves to him, The source of all goodness and virtues. At least ten times a day we ask God to guide us to the straight path, the path of loving God, embodying His qualities and rejecting Satan's attempts to draw us closer to Him. I seek no sustenance from them, nor do I ask that they feed me. He is the All Provider in the sense that all beings derive their subsistence from God. Therefore, He is self-sufficient in terms of sustenance and provision. God is the All-Sustainer, the Lord of Power, the Ever-Strong. God is ever-strong, in the sense that He has unlimited power. Does such a being need any other being's help? When one of God's servants becomes a'abd, by opening up to God, the divine attributes become realized through their becoming a source of goodness and assistance for others. Those who do wrong, the noob, like their predecessors, will have a share of punishment. They need not ask me to hasten it. Thenb, another name for tail, is used to denote a sin, because a sin is the result of a person's error or misdeed which leaves an imprint on their being. This is just like eating very fatty or sugary food. For doing so will have long term effects on a person's body and potentially prove detrimental in terms of one's health, even may cause an early death. In short, we live with the consequences of what we have consumed. Knowing this, why do we resist examining our soul, prodding our conscience, or seeking treatment for our hearts? Whatever we do in this world, has consequences that outlast our deeds and even our lives. Since they trail behind us, we call them dhunub. Even though we commonly render this word as sin, what we are really referring to are the negative effects of misdeeds that cling to us. Like their predecessors means the effects of the deeds committed By the above-mentioned destroyed peoples. God says that such people will suffer the same consequences of their deeds and the same fate that befell them will befall the wrongdoers of today and tomorrow. Therefore, they should be patient instead of trying to hasten what God has in store for them. They taunt the prophet. Where is this punishment that you threatened us with? Why doesn't it come already? God directs the prophet to tell them to not be so eager for it to come, for it will come at its designated time, and they will suffer their fate. Woe then to those who deny the truth on the day they have been promised. Woe to those who hid and resisted the truth on the day when this punishment will be implemented. Woe to those who disregarded the natural order of the cosmos and were blind to its realities. Woe to those on the day on which they will be brought back to life for judgment.